Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell, and today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review Darren Aronofsky's 2000 spiritual mindfuck. The Fountain. 2006. 2006, yes, my bad. No, it, it's just important because self-flagellation was really big that year. <laughs> okay, say more. That was also the year that the movie of Da Vinci Code came out. And Paul Bettany, Paul Bettany, but I refuse to call him anything but Paul Bettany because he's very famous for showing his ass in movies, did a self-flagellation scene for mm. uh, Da Vinci Code. Okay. So I'm just saying it's important because self-flagellation was like really in that year. Is it? I'm not, you're right. But I also just wonder if that's a, we have a movie with Catholics in it. Let's throw in some (laughs) self-flagellation. I mean, maybe, but with like the time and how big of a thing it was, I'm just saying the pipeline to scene kid from scene kid to BDSM makes complete sense to me now. Yeah, yeah, I buy it. Scene kids were the only ones who saw this movie when it came out. Hi, hello, it's me. (laughs) We watched this and then you told me that was like the fifth time you'd seen this film. (laughs) So this comparatively is your fifth element. No, this is my green room. Yeah, fair. This is my green room because like lots of people have seen fifth element. I'm the one going around and like making a friend because I notice he has a fountain tattoo and I go, oh my God, is that a fountain tattoo? And he goes, you just knew what that was and I've never had anyone know what that was. So it's like my own special bubble. Delightful. Your own special bubble that you fly through space in. Yes. And tend to a tree that is your former lover, maybe. (laughs) And there's a shot that, like, raises hairs on the back of the tree. And it's also similar to how he kisses his wife's back of her neck and her hairs raise. This movie is so circular. Indeed. (laughs) In so many ways. But if you've missed The Fountain, how would you describe it for people? If you've missed The Fountain, The Fountain is an examination of love and death as portrayed in three different, very different time periods. 2005 AD, 2500 AD, and 1500 and 1500 might just be somebody's book. Maybe. It, might, it might be somebody telling a story or it might actually be happening. It's very unclear and that is absolutely the point. So the 2005 story kind of anchors the film. Yes. Around the earlier and the later bookend. Yes. You have Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz playing a married couple and Rachel Wise character Izzy is dying of cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, And Hugh Jackman's character, Tommy is a brain surgeon. Specifically, he's a brain surgeon for 
animals. Right. And so his whole thing is, if I can find a way to save these animals, I can find a way to save my wife. Right. And it's it's the classic man versus the concept of death Correct. story juxtaposed by two separate narratives, each 500 years away from the main narrative, and none of it is presented linearly, and it is all overlapping and cycling into one another and repeating shots across different timelines. And if you think about it and try to make it make sense, your brain will snap in half. Welcome to Darren Aronofsky. (laughs) I think it's beautiful. I think the not knowing of, okay, is the past story Izzy's book that she's writing to distract herself from her death, or maybe not even distract herself, maybe prepare herself for her death. Is it just a story that she's telling? Or is this a Mayan fairy tale? Or is this something that actually happened, but has been lost to time? And it gets really confusing because there's a moment at the end where Tom in the future psychically manifests into the past backslash the story and is confused for a god. But more than that, we don't have anything to tell us the future story happens, period. Yeah, no, it just other than, exists. Yeah, other than like the fact that it's Hugh Jackman, but it's narratively plausible that it's Hugh Jackman writing the ending of the book. Mm-hmm. And it's just it 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 is the most mind bendy film I think we've seen on cult fiction certainly since like Enter the Void. Yeah, there's a lot of themes that are pretty similar, like love and the themes of death and recreation yeah. and who we are at the end of the day. Are we how we died, or are we how who we were born to be? And what is the nature of the afterlife and where do our souls go and what do they become? And Darren Aronofsky and Gaspar Noe would absolutely like share a scotch. I think so too. I think so very much. Aw, I love that for them. (laughs) Which scotch do you think they would drink? Oh God, it's a guy from New York and a Frenchman. So probably a bad scotch. Oh, like how they, sad for them. They don't know it's a good scotch, but they don't care because they've never had a good scotch. Oh, no. That's so sad. It is, but it's okay. They, they'll enjoy it. Speaking of uh, crossovers in this movie, obviously we have a dying wife. We have grief of a husband who's dealing with it. So he ink tattoos a ring onto himself. In in an incredibly affecting scene. Yes, his wife has just died. He his wife has left him with like a quill and ink to finish her book for him. He lost his wedding ring and couldn't find it before she died. So he's just like, I'm gonna give myself a prison tattoo. (laughs) Ha ha, I'm Hugh Jackman. And repeatedly stabs himself in the finger with an ink pen which is screaming for an infection, but is absolutely poignant and affecting. And like, I did in fact tear up. So I didn't think about this until I watched this movie with you and you're like, oh, that's a good way to get an infection. But speaking of 
two pieces of media coming into one. As you said that, the only thing I could think of was Michael Shannon in Shape of Water and how he and this character should have a drink and talk about broken fingers. Talk about finger trauma? Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. That has no point other than to bring up Shape of Water and Michael Shannon's role in it. I mean, why does anyone ever need a point to bring up Best Picture winning The Shape of Water starring Michael Shannon? Oh, no, no, no. As he is known in... Cecil be demented. As he is known in Cecil be demented, Mike Shannon. Indeed. Mike Shannon. Mike Shannon, who we have not seen in this podcast in a minute. Yes. Um, so something I, I, I want to talk about is Darren Aronofsky himself. Okay. I always have my little director corner. And the thing with Darren Aronofsky is... This man, in my humble opinion, is one of the most vocally insufferable directors I've come across. The man has a habit of serial dating the female leads in his films, which isn't great. And is maybe one of the most famous vocal atheists in Hollywood. And that in of itself, fine, whatever, absolutely no problem. But the man is the most vocal atheist I've ever encountered who is deeply obsessed with religion, specifically Christianity, and like just talking about it and throwing it in his movies everywhere he can get away with and just like hyper fixating on it. But in a way that, like, would make Christians upset. <laughs> Is everything all right? Everything's all right. I'm so okay with it, though, because some of his commentary on life and death and the cycle therein and the Garden of Eden really makes room for play with the form as... These are stories we tell ourselves. Sure. These are the stories that hold themselves in our society, that our moralism is crafted after, that we seek to be good people based on. And I think in a movie where we're talking about life and death and morality and whether or not we're reincarnated and what is the meaning of life anyway, someone using biblical text as just that text is really affecting i agree and, and and credit where it's due this is my favorite daronofsky film that i've seen and i've seen probably half of his body of work mm-hmm. um i think this is a terribly affecting movie i think he goes a little harder in the ways that are like controversial in films like noah and mother in the fountain it's really lovely and beautiful and in the central narrative, our characters are Tom and Izzy Creo. Creo being Spanish for I believe or I think. So he literally named the female protagonist of his film Izzy Creo, translating to, and yes, I do believe. <laughs> He also, in this movie, has 
a completely random and arbitrary um, Muslim presenting character. And I say this because they're in Spain and he is a guy wearing a, a tarab of some kind and like traditional Middle Eastern garb. And he, this character, is the one who like openly denounces God and like accidentally murders a Franciscan monk. So it's a lot of like, it's it's a lot of Aronofsky being like, isn't religion fucked, guys? I also pulled up Darren Aronofsky's Wikipedia, and he's wearing one of those like newsboy caps and a Pierce Nez, like those stupid little glasses that like go around your nose. And it's just like, oh buddy, oh oh you're a little special, Fran. It's the energy of the nerdy art film student who gets all the ass. It's flicking scarf over his shoulder. Yes. And the man is a visionary director and is absolutely brilliant and literally cannot stop talking about how, like, upset he is at the concept of Christianity. But then makes Noah. Yes. And... Mother, a movie that is basically an Eden allegory. An Eden allegory where God lets Earth die. So, you know. To Darren Aronofsky's credit, and I did not know this until reading the uh, notes of the film on IMDb, a third of this movie takes place in the past. It is it is the past story. It is a Spanish conquistador invading Central America tale. And the very opening of the film is this very epic, like, uh, uh, three conquistadors versus 70 Mayan warriors moment. And all of the extras, all of the Mayan warriors were actual Guatemalan Mayan descendant actors, extras who were flown down to actually be in the thing. This is maybe the only time I've ever heard of a director being like, well, no, we're doing something in the past. We need the appropriate ethnicity of actor to do the thing instead of just like holding a casting call in LA and getting like, you look racially ambiguous. Exactly. So props there. Props where it's due. Absolutely. Yes. Turn of the same coin when future transcendent Tom shows up in the past and he's a white dude floating in the air. The Mayan priest falls on his knees and assumes he's God. Now, it yes. is possible because he appears out of nowhere and he's floaty and he's gold. Sure. But it's a white dude and a Mayan dude going... Oh, you're okay. I have to sacrifice myself. Without a second thought goes, oh, first father, which is their, like, their Odin, Zeus, capital G, God, God. Oh, first father, I did not realize it was you. Presents throat to be slit. But presents it like he's pulling open a box. Like his throat is now a present. And it's just evocative, but also... A little painful. Indeed. Yeah, very much so. Um, and, and I guess all of this just to say, like, the, the you, you, you sure can talk about the guy. You sure can. You I, can bring up positive and negative. 
Uh, other things you can talk about is how this movie does not break the Bechdel test because the only moment that the two named women talk, we can't hear the conversation. We literally don't get to know what they talk about. You mean the guy who has a habit of seeing his leading ladies as girlfriend material and therefore a thing to like increase his own romantic social efforts doesn't have a care about including two female characters to actually say anything to each other in the film? Yeah. yeah. Okay, actually, I should say, in his defense, in his defense, he was dating Rachel Weisz before she was cast. Yeah. And we actually do know what they talked about because it's mentioned later that Izzy asks the other female character whose name is... Oh, it's Dr. Something. I mean, it's it's Ellen Burstyn in real life. Dr. Lillian. Dr. Lillian. Asks Dr. Lillian if she can be buried on her farm. Indeed. Indeed. And no, when I, when I poke at Darren Aronofsky and his habit of, of dating his leading ladies, you, you're correct. Rachel Weisz, he was coincidentally dating. But when he... Uh, dumped Rachel Weiss to then start dating Natalie Portman around the time he cast her in Black Swan. Yikes. That one's on, on him. Yikes. And there's a whole big thing made on IMDb about how it's like, well, he doesn't like to be partial. Right. Hugh Jackman okay. had to convince him Rachel Weiss was the right person for the role and shit i mean she she totally she was acted the hell out of it she killed this movie like absolutely no i think the movie killed her hey hey <laughs> we do get and count them three dead wife shots yep well it's the same shot but it appears three times throughout the movie the classic slow motion running from camera looking over the shoulder laughing stop stop <sighs> i'm your dead wife <laughs> yes yeah no multiple times we get this shot absolutely a lot of repeating motifs in this film we get multiple dead wife shots we get multiple uses of shape particularly rings and circles, which are a very significant symbol through the film. The sun, the wedding ring, the magic unexplained spherical space Zen device, <laughs> the bald head of Hugh Jackman. <laughs> and at first you were like, that is a hardworking bald cap. You want to talk about hardworking bald caps. And I was like, that was Hugh Jackman. I'm pretty sure this bitch shaved his head. And he did. And he did. And he gets fewer hairs. Less hair? He becomes more bald throughout the epics of the movie. Like, Indeed. Conquistador has long hair. 2000-something has, like, shorty scene kid. And no beard. <laughs> and no. then Enlightened Tommy is, like, bald... Doesn't have a hair on his body. Yep. Um, repeated use of the color gold. Like this movie is filled with gold light just shining everywhere in every possible way. The only time it's not gold is when it is like 
the bright, blinding light of absolution shining down on specific characters. Well, Izzy's always cast in, like, bright white light. Right, right. And she's just walking around in a floating spotlight, and Hugh Jackman's sitting over there in his corner being sad. Yeah. Oh, poor sad Hugh Jackman. Poor sad Hugh Jackman. Very like, we're going to teach this in film school, filmmaking from Aronofsky. And I I do mean that in a complimentary way. Yeah, there's a bit where there's a shot of an upside down um, highway and a car drives by and the camera like flips to follow the car and it, it, everything writes itself. And then like a minute later, they do the same exact shot, only it's in feudal Spain and it's a horse like that kind of shit like okay go for it that I'm here for I could not have shot this film you could not have shot this film I I would not have been up to the challenge of shooting this particular film I would have left that to cinematographer Matthew Libatique I was like super interested because this movie is so narratively all or not narrative yeah chronologically this this film is so chronologically over all over the place and I knew from the first time I read an article in some pretentious like web list about how good this movie was I knew about the jumping timeline but for 2006 audiences, I was really curious what it would be. So we actually watched the trailer right before recording. And the trailer makes it seem like the Conquistador plot is a lot more prominent. Mm-hmm. And it also does this thing where it, like, it kind of gives you the impression that there's a linearness to it all. It also makes you think that Hugh Jackman is the same person. So, like, Mm -hmm. I can imagine audiences walking in thinking, oh, this is going to be, like, some movie about, like, the Garden of Eden or the Tree of Life or the Fountain of Youth or something, and and this guy's going to be immortal. And the first, like, ten minutes of the film are just, you're dropped into conquistador plot central america Mm -hmm. and then it, like, slam pans into the future and then it slams into the present. And it is very, like, again, just... This movie doesn't guide you by the hand. No. It kind of drops you in and goes, well, you're here now. You're here now. Buckle up. Enjoy the ride. And I think a lot of people were like, I'm going to go to the other theater and watch King Arthur. And I think that's another thing that it has in common with Enter the Void. It just... It happens. Yeah. You're either here or you're not. You're either here or you're, you're either here and you probably get it or you're not and you're not going to get it even if you stay. A random thing. A, a, a random thing. I fell down a rabbit hole about this. Um, Aronofsky stated that he wrote this film. He started writing this film in 1999 when his parents were diagnosed with cancer But in the same breath, like, he's like, yeah, my parents were diagnosed with cancer and that was really scary. And I was turning 30 and that was really scary. Like, I was (laughs) having an existential crisis. And I was like, that's a very specific midlife crisis. Where have I heard that before? Oh, yeah, the musical Tick, Tick, Boom. Wait, 
1999. When did... Okay, hold on. Jonathan Larson first performed Tick, Tick, Boom as a reading in 1990. Okay, hold on. Where did Darinovsky grow up? Oh, Brooklyn? It is not impossible that 21-year-old film student Darren Aronofsky wandered in and watched Jonathan Larson's original performance of Tick, Tick, Boom, where the opening song is about how turning 30 feels like the end of the universe and was so terribly affected that it planted the seed of the story in his mind. That's a really long walk for a short drink of water, bub. Any chance to talk about Jonathan Larson, really? (laughs) I, yes, that is entirely possible. It's also entirely possible that as his parents were possibly dying of cancer and he himself was aging, he went, oh my God, death is all around me. Oh, sure. Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. But no, you're right, you're right, you're right. He wanders in and he goes, wow, what is this place? A theater? And Jonathan Larson comes over and grabs his hand and goes, sure is, bud. Do you want a background tour? And they slap high, they give each other high fives and they become best bros. And actually they're good buddies. Until Jonathan Larson dies tragically young. Repeating the motif that death is all death is all around us. And then he wrote the fountain. Yeah. All I'm saying is it is like a hundred percent more likely that what I said happened than any other film we've seen on cult fiction. Oh for sure. There's hidden messages all over the movie. Jonathan Larson. Izzy Creo, same number of syllables. She looks a little bit like him. Maybe, maybe it's there. Maybe it's hidden in the movie. You're right. This is a whole thing. It's there. It's totally there. Darren Aronofsky and Kevin Bacon are going to come through that door and say, you figured it out and shake my hand. And Patrick Stewart's going to be behind him and he's going to give me a hug and I'm going to call him peace to And then they're all going to look very disappointed at me and walk out the door. But not before grabbing me and saying, come on, we're going to actually get you a pony. Indeed. None of these deadbeats are going to do it. <laughs> Indeed. And then we're going to get Charles G- Carl's Jr. on the way. Perfect. <laughs> Done. So anyway. <laughs> getting back to it. So doing the, the movie podcast thing that we do. Doing the movie bo- podcast thing. It. Again, there's just there's a lot of stuff that like I want to deep dive more into, but like the biggest thing, and I, I think this is a message that Aronofsky is trying to communicate to the audience, and it's narratively ironic that Tommy can't see it, but the ennui of immortality mm. is horrifying. Like this is something that that Queen the band has has sung about masterfully who wants to live forever there's this i'm i'm always fascinated by characters who are like my goal in life is to make it so there is no death because if you think about it for more than like a couple of minutes in your grief my wife just passed 
loss, you realize how terrible that is. Yeah. And the film does something interesting with that because in all three eras, Hugh Jackman's character is headstrong and arrogant to a point and like driven and committed to a fault with defeating the concept of death. Whether it's Tomas the Conquistador finding the Tree of Life or Tommy Creo literally curing brain cancer permanently or Tom the... Enlightened Tommy. Yeah, Tom the Transcendent still trying to like get a leg up on the concept of death so that his tree wife can go to her nebula heaven and everything will be okay. And you're watching the movie and you see them all like, you see past and present Tommy struggle and fail. And it really seems like future Tommy, oh, maybe he'll have learned the lesson. Maybe he'll, He'll figure it out. And he totally doesn't. The narrative cycle is every time he falls short and he fails, the only twist is in the end, he realizes the thing he needed to do all along was let go. And that, like, rewrites all of time emotionally or something that's where the ending gets really like, it's like a ribbon, but you tied it together and then you let your cat play with it and it's just not going to be a straight line again. Would you let your cat play with? That would, would won't I? come undone? Yeah. No, I'm saying, um, is there something that you let your cat play with that won't come undone that brings up this particular metaphor? No. Oh, okay. I just thought you had fucked up a pair of headphones and you decided to make this podcast about it. 77 episodes in, we get to the real meat of what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> oh, my cat fucked up my headphones. <laughs> I think that's true. I um, wrote down at the beginning of this how much of a pain in the ass I find Tommy because he's making his wife's death about him. Yeah, it's literally the, your introduction to Tommy is doing the thing of like, not now, dear, I'm trying to cure cancer here. Your wife needs you. Death is a disease. And it's a cure. And I will find it. He's trying to save her and in trying to save her is squandering his few last precious moments with her, which is like literally the point of the film is to highlight what a mistake that is. Yeah. That's the part that I think Darren Aronofsky's parents getting cancer like affected him terribly is he probably like looked up one day from his notebook and realized, Oh God, I've been writing a movie while you guys are dying of cancer. Let, let me hold you and let's spend time together. So anyway, my point was <laughs> Go ahead. that he's, sitting there making his wife's cancer about him. Arguably, yeah, he's writing this movie about death and grief and his parents dying. And then at the finally, at the end, after all of this greed, even finding the tree of life and greedily drinking it and then realizing after you've drunk it that, oh no, you get the, the bad tree. You didn't actually <laughs> want 
to live forever. You don't want to be a tree. You want to live forever, not be a fucking tree. But now you're a tree because you drank the tree of life. Sucks to be you. He realizes, oh, living forever is love. Like, Mm -hmm. that's ultimately what this is. And I think that actually redeems him but for the first yeah you're right for the first three acts he's miserable he's so annoying right absolutely and that part specifically again i just can't get over maybe at a certain point maybe it's me reading into this but i can't get over the concept of what darren aronofsky thinks the good version of the afterlife is we hear multiple times the expression of actual immortality being the idea of well, I died and a tree was planted over my grave. And so I live on through the tree and I live on through the seeds of the tree and I live on through the birds that eat the seeds of the tree. And it's a very non capital H heaven afterlife, but it is like expressed as the good thing. Yeah. It's not a place. It's not a reserved sanctuary of angels singing all of the time. It's a consistent act and a consistent cycle and consistent growth and movement and change. Yeah. This movie is a thousand percent why I want to be bar- I want to be cremated and have my ashes made into a tree. Sure. Or well basically made to live in dirt and have a tree grown out of that dirt. Made to help feed a tree. Is that how that works? Yes. The carbon of your ashes helps the tree grow. So it'd be tree food. It wouldn't actually be the tree. Well, no. If you if you believe this film, you become the tree because the tree absorbs the oh, you yeah, 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 that yeah. is you okay. from the ashes. Aw, my little tree. Where should I plant it? You won't. Because you'll be the tree. (laughs) Okay, so where should my ghost tell Alex to plant Ah, it? (laughs) Okay. Blue Ridge Parkway. There you go. There you go. Um, You told me something interesting about this film. There is a sequence where um, Tom is giving Izzy a bath. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, yes. Their very hot sex scene. No, no, no. Not just their very hot sex scene. The thing that you described to me as maybe your favorite sex scene in a bath, which I have to interrogate a, do you mean you've seen multiple sex scenes that take place in a bath? Yes. Okay, so it's not your favorite sex scene, period, and the bath is part of why? Yes. Okay. Okay, I could explain. Okay. One, there's a really beautiful scene in Big Fish. It's not actually sex, but it's extremely sensual, where the main character's parents come together and the big fish character of the old man is dying. And in dealing with that, he decides he needs to be near water and he goes into the bath and his, he's in all of his clothes, absorbing the water and his wife climbs in with him and they hold each other. 
And that's like one of the most beautiful scenes committed to film, in my opinion. So not necessarily a sex scene, but the reason the bath is very important to the sex scene is because the whole desperate need that Izzy holds in her body is this is what alive people do. And I just realized I need to feel something because I can't feel temperature. Mm -hmm. The water is steaming hot and I can't feel it. So I need to feel something. And you are the closest something and the most important something and the most special something. And you're right here and I need to feel you. I get it. I, I, I no, I, I truly do. It is terribly affecting. And that scene in particular is just, I, I think what I said, because at first he like turns her down because he like needs to set up a doctor's appointment. Mm -hmm. And I literally said out loud, oh, turning down your dying horny wife because you're too busy trying to save her is a complete new level of heartbreaking yeah. that I did not realize was possible. <laughs> So then the catharsis of actually getting the sex scene. And not only a sex scene, they're literally splashing water outside the tub. It's very evocative. She's pulling at his shirt. It's like, this is what a sex scene should do. Mm. I have a lot of opinions about sex scenes in movies because I think a lot of the time they're just used as a lazy device. Sure. But this is actually used as this means something this drives the plot this drives connection this drives motivation it's so beautiful yeah not to mention it's steaming hot water and we've got two very lovely humans in a bathtub like, it's like peak of their career hugh jackman and rachel weiss yeah no, yeah yeah i get it very lovely humans if ellen burston was just a little younger. This would be a bisexual awakening film on the same <laughs> level as The Mummy. Yes, agreed. 100%. <laughs> uh, I, I deeply enjoyed it. I, I thought it was really good. There's just so much that is like there for a careful eye to dig into. There's Rachel Weiss writes this story and the story is set in Spain and the bad guy is the Catholic Inquisitor. But like the good guys are Franciscan monks, which works if you remember Franciscan monks whole deal was let us fuck up up the mountain and worship God the way we want and we'll leave you alone. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> you have like the idea of heaven being a nebula heaven being a star that you can visit if you get in a magic space bubble thing and propel yourself there hard enough. Become basically boy version of Glinda. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's got some, like, Glinda the Good Witch vibes going on. Yeah. Very, very, very fair. Yeah, he's floating <laughs> around in the bubble. There's this, the the... The nature between Hugh Jackman and the tree is somehow even more erotic than the the bathtub sequence. He's consistently whispering to it and trying to get the little tree hairs to like perk up in excitement and like 
whispering sensually as he carves something out of it to then consume. And when he's consuming pieces of it, it's always like a very extreme close-up of Hugh Jackman's mouth and tongue as he like sensually puts it on his tongue. And I'm like, do I want to go eat bark now? What is happening? (laughs) You want to eat bark like a communion wafer and then like levitate in a stereotypically Buddhist pose. Boy, do I sign (laughs) me up. Um, There's just, there's, there's so much. I, I hadn't seen this film before. We were watching it together and early in the film, I was like, Oh, fascinating. The, the visual connection between the spear and the quill. Mm-hmm. And you were like, I've seen this movie four times and I never thought about that. Mm-mm. I loved watching it with you because this is a movie where every time I watch it, I catch something new. Sure. So. Take this ring. It is a symbol of your pledge to find the elixir of immortality. You shall wear it when you find Eden. It's really lovely. Thank you. You're welcome. It is. This is an incredibly good movie. Like, as much as I want to poke fun at Darren Aronofsky, I will not poke fun at this film. It's... Is this the best film we've seen since The Princess Bride? I think so. Interesting. Yeah, probably. I mean, you're probably right. It's either that or Blue Ruin. Which one did you like better? Oh, they're totally different movies. Indeed. But yeah, no, it's it's terribly good. That let, Let's let that lead us into our Oscars because every... Uh, episode of cult fiction we agree that a movie still deserves an oscar you were you were reading me the accolades that this film actually did win and it won a lot of like foreign awards went over the critics head for the oscars but i would like to give the fountain the oscar for most andy has cried during a cult fiction movie you cried yes i cried I had to pause to wipe my tears away. Okay, I knew the like the once where we had like a very like dear moment where I had to be like, it's okay, it's gonna be okay. But I didn't know you cried more than once. Oh yeah, I mean, just like got teary eyed during the bathtub sequence and how heartbreaking it was. I got teary eyed over him carving a tattoo over his wedding ring. That's the big one. Well, and specifically about that, like. The concept of something I just never thought about. There could come a day when it is my first day of mourning. I'd never thought about that. And the film like slapped me in the face with its glove on. And I just started like actively crying. And I don't think cult fiction has made me cry before. So, Yeah, Mo is absolutely going to die first. Sorry. Anyway... I would like to give The Fountain the Oscar for Best Visual Effect Hack. Okay, why is that? Because they didn't want to do CGI. Mm. So Aronofsky's like, yeah, no, I'm going to film some Petri dishes. And I'm going to use that as a visual effect instead. Okay, I, I assume specifically talking about the Nebula sequence... Okay, listeners, we didn't really talk about it. There's a moment at the end where Hugh Jackman, like, realizes 
death is the absolution he craves and he jumps out of his spaceship bubble and is like floating inside this nebula and it's gold concentric rings just enveloping around him and that's not cgi holy shit no he decided he didn't want to do cgi because it would take away from the like timelessness of the film and he Mm. wanted it to be timeless again scarf toss over the shoulder but he chose to do the visual effects for the film by using micro photography of chemical reactions on tiny petri dishes that's honestly incredible that's that's honestly one of the most impressive things we've come across for this podcast i know so like i know i said like oh it's a cool hack but like this is truly deserving of an oscar like a proper oscar oscar Like, listeners, if you didn't watch the film, look up the fountain nebula scene and watch that and then realize that is entirely practical effect. Made out of science. Made out of science and lose your mind. Thank you. This is what this show is for. (laughs) You're welcome. You know what else this show is for? Gushing over Kevin Bacon. Gushing over Kevin Bacon. Would you like to go first? Um, I would actually love for you to go first. Um, okay. Well, I love Rachel Weiss, so I, of course, made mine about Rachel Weiss, who was in Enemy at the Gates with Ed Harris, who was in a pop... God damn it, I know exactly what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, go on. Ed Harris was in Apollo 13. <sighs> with Kevin fascinating yeah a movie a movie about about shuttles um there's another movie that's not necessarily about shuttles but does have a a scene that takes place in cape canaveral um and that film is x-men first class god damn it where kevin bacon plays sebastian shaw the villain and you get one scene and hugh jackman gets one line and that one line is saying fuck off to Magneto and Professor Xavier. And because of that, this movie can be completed in one. There is a direct connection to Kevin Bacon. I love how I realized that halfway through saying my Oscar. I'm like, he was in a... God damn it. I love how we spent five minutes reading each other's notes and you still did that. Do you think I read yours properly? (laughs) I don't have time for that, Andrew. I've got things to do you know fair enough i've got places to be so with the places we need to be let's find out which movie we're watching next time let's indeed every episode of cult fiction we pick our next film by putting our hands into fate aka the hollywood crypt not unlike hugh jackman places his hands in fate through the application of a nebula sure this is our crypt nebula Made up of 272 movies and a random number generator on Google. And next time on Cold Fiction, we are going to be looking at film number 120. Returning to Cold Fiction is Kevin Smith for the 2001 comedy Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Okay. All right. Okay.
Is that the one where they car fuck uh, Carrie Fisher? I mean, I haven't seen this movie since I was in college, so it's 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 time for a rewatch. But let's not make mistakes this time. Where can we stream? You can rent Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back on Amazon for weirdly $2.89. That's specific. Okay. Well, I guess we will watch that on Amazon. And that's it for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time as we sit there and go, is this really the first time we're seeing Mark Hamill in a cult fiction film? Oh. As we watch Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Rowell.